0: Welcome to kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond.
1: Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand-to-hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls.
0: Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news.
1: Frontlines of Justice reports that more than 200 organizations are calling for the New York City Council to pass the right to no act into law to help end police abuse. The act promotes police accountability in New Yorkers' everyday interactions with the NYPD in an effort to prevent abuses and unconstitutional searches taking place in communities throughout the city. The Right to Know Act is a legislative package that aims to protect the civil and human rights of New Yorkers by improving transparency and accountability. It consists of two bills that have majority support in the New York City Council and are awaiting a vote. The bills demand that the police explain why they are stopping someone, identify themselves to the public, document consent to a search, and provide information to those they stop and search about how they can file a complaint about police conduct.
0: Wild whose story we covered on Kite Line in September, is an anarchist from the U.S. who was accused of participating in the May 18th demo in Paris during which a cop car was burned. She had a court date on Wednesday, October 11th. A supporter of Kara writes to us with the following. She was convicted of participation in a group in order to prepare to commit acts of violence, etc., destroying the car with fire or other means that are dangerous to humans and aggravated assault on the cops. She was sentenced to four years, two of them suspended. Her spirits are high. She thinks she will be out soon because of how time served works in the French prison system. There is no exact release date yet. Sentences for other defendants ranged from one to seven years, with five years for Krem, another prominent inditee. The judge scolded one of her co-defendants that, quote, The action, attacking police because they are police, is equivalent to attacking a black person because they are black, end quote, is no surprise that this judge, an authority figure within the state apparatus, has no critical analysis or awareness of the difference between hate crimes and state power and violence carried out every day by the state at the hands of the police. Kara and Krem remain in custody and can still use monetary support. Information on supporting CARA and other prisoners from last year's social movement in France can be found at FreeCarawile.org. October
1: 10th marks the 15th World Day Against the Death Penalty, which aims to raise awareness about the reasons why people living in poverty are at greater risk of being sentenced to death and executed. The World Coalition Against the Death Penalty organized the efforts. The death penalty is used discriminatorily, often against the most vulnerable people in society. Application of the death penalty is inextricably linked to poverty. Social and economic inequalities affect access to justice for those who are sentenced to death for a number of reasons, including that defendants might lack the social, economic, and political power to defend themselves. In some cases, those sentenced to death are discriminated against because of their social status. In 2013, the Center for Constitutional Rights and International Federation for Human Rights issued a report on the death penalty that concluded that the use of the practice violates human rights, ranging from the murderous nature of the penalty itself to the way in which it is implemented, which constitutes torture and discrimination.
0: On Kite Line this week, we share the first part of a lecture by Elizabeth Hinton, delivered at IU on October 12th. In her talk, she traces the creation and rise of mass incarceration as a strategy of America's ruling class. Her historical research, which culminated in a book last year called From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime, demonstrates that the explosion of prison construction predated any rise in crime, but was instead a response to the spread of social unrest and black protest. Here she is.
2: The federal government's long-term response to the civil rights movement is essentially the question at the center of my book, which examines the development of the war on crime from its origins in the war on poverty through the rise of mass incarceration and the war on drugs in the 1980s. And I draw from newly declassified presidential archives from the Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Reagan administrations to trace the punitive transformation of domestic policy from the mid-1960s onwards. So more than anything, I think the book provides uh, necessary perspective to understanding the process that gave rise to the contemporary atrocity of mass incarceration in America, which, as you know, is a phenomenon distinguished by a rate of imprisonment far above all other industrialized nations, and that involves the systematic confinement of entire groups of citizens. So given the, tri- the priorities of the Trump administration, when Black Lives Matter and Make America Great Again are two of the most prominent catchphrases in the nation, it's clear that we've really reached a breaking point, a crossroads, and it's unclear exactly which way we will go. I may not have all the answers, but I think the book makes two critical interventions that I hope will help lead us towards alternatives. The more obvious one that Michelle mentioned is the thoroughly bipartisan nature of of the rise of the modern carceral state and mass incarceration. Liberals and conservatives built consensus that consistently supported the militarization of urban police forces, harsh sentencing provisions, and the expansion of the prison system due to their own shared set of assumptions about black Americans' poverty and crime. And other scholars have made this point, so Naomi Marikawa, Marie Gottschalk, and Heather Thompson come to mind. But I also ask readers to come to terms with how policymakers own racism limited the possibilities of the war on poverty and by extension post-war liberalism in new ways to essentially rethink the war on poverty. And I think that these discussions about some of the limits of liberalism and the fact that liberals can be racist too are are discussions that uh, new generations are really asking. The movie Get Out in many ways that I'm sure a number of you have seen was really kind of asking us to come to terms with um, white liberal racism. The book's second intervention is a bit more complicated. I aim to show that although the rise of the carceral state is often presented as a response to crime waves and violence, long before violent crime actually came to low-income black and brown neighborhoods and long before the launch of the war on drugs in the 1980s, federal policymakers and the social scientists they consulted decided that a generation of black youth were criminal, or what they called potentially delinquent, And so thus we need to understand the the rise of national law enforcement policies as preemptive. They were intended to manage the effects of poverty and inequality in segregated urban areas and have operated in this manner for the past half century. So I'd like to share with you today what I think is uh, one of the most profound and devastating examples of this preemptive dynamic. And I think it's the most important finding of my research. By examining the ways federal policymakers reimagined, reshaped, and redesigned America's carceral landscape in the 1970s, this afternoon I hope to provide at least part of the answer to the question of how and why the U.S. came to house the largest prison system on the planet. For the strategies national officials developed during this critical decade spawned the institutional and technical framework that firmly set the nation on the road to mass incarceration. So historians have acknowledged the ways in which previous forms of confinement and bondage had rested explicitly on the exploitation of black labor, and and scholars have pointed out the fact that contemporary prisons have evolved into a band-aid for the problems of poverty and deindustrialization. The rise of the punishment sector stimulated rural economies and provided jobs to hundreds of thousands of disproportionately white Americans in the moment when domestic manufacturing shifted overseas. So I'd like to highlight two other crucial new developments of the 1970s that marked a unique transformation of the American penal regime. First, after the enactment of monumental civil rights legislation and in the immediate context of widespread urban rebellion, the federal government became actively involved in state level corrections for the first time. And second, as a direct result of this federal intervention, the American carceral demography shifted from majority white to majority black and brown in the 1970s. Although ascendant numbers of black Americans were imprisoned at a far higher frequency following the Civil War, until the 1970s, they constituted roughly a third of the nation's prison population. Only after federal policymakers started investing in crime control measures did black Americans encompass roughly half of the nation's incarcerated citizens. Those of us seeking justice reform tend to think of this shift towards the mass incarceration of black and Latino citizens as the product of sentencing laws and racial profiling, while federal officials and researchers who implemented these new measures justified the escalation of punitive programs as a seemingly natural response to high rates of reported crime and violence in segregated urban neighborhoods. Based on my readings of previously confidential files and correspondence among officials in the Nixon administration and the Bureau of Prisons, however, I have come to understand this transition as the outcome of the desires of federal representatives, who began to actively envision and plan for the dramatic growth of the penal system shortly after the election of 1968. In November 1969, Nixon sent Attorney General John Mitchell a long memo on the dismal state of American, of the American prison system, directing him to lead the Bureau of Prisons and making, quote, the federal correction corrections system a prototype for the much needed overhaul of our generally archaic state and local corrections institutions. Nixon predicted that the prison problem would only grow worse in the future, pointing out that while he believed the national law enforcement program would deter crime in the long run, in the short term, the policing programs and strategies policymakers embraced had substantially increased the arrest rate, clogging the court system and leading to overcrowding in the nation's penal institutions that could no longer be ignored by federal policymakers. Against the backdrop of Nixon's crime control measures, a sampling of which I'll discuss in a bit, was an ongoing prison construction project that began in the spring of 1970, when the president ordered Mitchell and the Bureau of Prisons to develop a 10-year long-range master plan that would modernize the nation's prison system. An internal and confidential bureau document, the long-range plan was originally intended for high Nixon officials and Bureau of Prisons administrators. The construction project was essentially an in-house planning operation and thus its content Contents did not reach the public until authorities broke ground on the new prisons. Mitchell, Norman Carlson, who was the director of the Bureau of Prisons from 1970 to 1987, which, as you probably know, was an extremely critical period, and the other officials involved in developing the plan, failed to include even policymakers in their discussions, instead bringing in a small advising panel with unnamed legal experts and psychologists who served as a sounding board for the top-secret team. The plan they devised was nothing short of a blueprint for a penal revolution. And here's a picture of Nixon, Mitchell, and Carlson. So it's, a, it's especially significant that when Richard Nixon took office in 1969, he inherited a penal system that had been shedding prisoners. The 1960s produced the single largest reduction in the population of federal and state prisons in the nation's history, with 16,500 fewer inmates in 1969 than in 1950. But despite this trend towards decarceration, following Nixon's call to expand the carceral state, and under the auspices of his administration, the Bureau of Prisons prepared to double the number of federal penal facilities by 1980. Indeed the Nixon administration's $500 million construction project, which amounts to more than $1.5 billion in today's dollars, represented an entirely new phase of investment in federal prisons. Essentially, Nixon had called for a new federal model that would inspire states to follow suit, and as the administration intended, the master plan reverberated throughout the entire penal system, ultimately laying the groundwork for the expansion of the American prison system at all levels of government. A record half million Americans were confined in penal institutions by the end of the 1970s, reflecting an increase of more than 25%, or an additional 120,000 incarcerated women and men. To usher in the threshold of a new era for corrections that Department of Justice officials believed they were creating, the administration went on to impose the offender classifications, management, management techniques, and construction guidelines that developed on governors while Congress incentivized prison construction, all of which I will discuss today. So when I first encountered this document in the Nixon archives, I was astounded by its content. Because it's literally the fears and assumptions of federal policymakers plotted as dotted lines along an an X-Y axis. And I'll show you in a minute. And I was stymied, admittedly, for years, unsure of how to approach it or the full weight of its implications. For the long-range plan remains one of the starkest declarations of policymakers' turn towards managing rather than ameliorating racial inequality through confinement more than a century after emancipation. My analysis of the long-range plan reveals that the entire rationale for escalating the scale of penal confinement was based not on the reality of crime, but on prison population projections. So this is a chart from the long-range plan. It's a little bit blurry. It probably looks very blurry to you in the back. um, That shows the ways in which the prison system escalates in relation to the passage of new laws. So remember, this 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 document is being made in 1970, And this last column here is the prison population projection um, for 1980. So it it also shows the Safe Streets Act, which was the first major, which is the last dotted line before the projection. Uh, which is the first major piece of federal crime control legislation, um, would would cause the federal prison population to soar from 21,000 people in 1970 to 29,000 in 1980. And so this projection prepared the federal government and the states, by extension, to house offenders in the prison system at historic rates. So this, this, uh, this is a planning chart, and this one from the Long Range Plan as well. And this one shows... Um, This one indicates policymakers' expectation of a prison explosion through the 1970s. So the dotted line there is the estimated adult population, and the bold curvy line above it is the planned capacity for these new prisoners. And so here we see that the Bureau of Prisons actually prepared to add prison beds to the system in excess of the projection. So the initial groundings, and again, remember, the the, the chart starts in 1970, and you see the projection for 1980, So this is, this is all being made in 1970. And the initial groundings for these forecasts came from the Crime and Kerner Commissions during the Johnson administration, and these were the task forces that Johnson convened to help his administration essentially design a blueprint uh, for American law enforcement and to develop recommendations that would respond to widespread urban uprisings during the second half of the 1960s. So the Crime Commission used census data and correctional surveys to estimate that by 1975, prison populations would swell to more than a half million prisoners from 200,000 or so. And the Kerner Commission analyzed census data to predict that young black Americans between the ages of 15 and 25, which was the demographic that federal policymakers and law enforcement officials believed to be responsible for the majority of the nation's crime, that this was the fastest growing group in the United States. In 1973, this projection was discounted, by the National Advisory Commission on Criminal Justice Standards and Goals, but the Nixon Administration continued to press on with the plan nevertheless. less. So let me just emphasize that even after these forecasts of the, black, of the growing Black youth population proved to be false, this same group of youth was seen as responsible for the bulk of the nation's crime and policymakers developed punitive measures accordingly. So together, these skewed statistics and crime predictions determined the future incarceration and arrest of millions of Americans far removed from the meeting rooms of the White House. As Congress started investing in criminal justice databanks and advanced computer technologies for police alongside military-grade weapons and targeted street patrol programs, the decision to remake the entire penal apparatus based largely on anticipated crime was more a response to social and demographic changes in American society than actual crime on the ground. So I don't have the space here to get into all of the research, police modernization programs and law enforcement strategies that I examine in the book, uh, programs that essentially turn black Americans into suspects for future crime in much the same manner that federal policymakers supported the dramatic growth of the prison system based on future populations but these new technologies of knowledge production built a statistical portrait of criminality that strongly implicated black americans in general and black youth in particular so we should understand much of the logics and the programs of the war on crime as preemptive measures this statistical discourse and i'm borrowing khalil muhammad's term here reinforced the nixon administration's remarkable prison construction project and the racial fears behind it so I have one more of these projections from you. Um, this chart was actually not included in the long-range master plan, but rather the, the gubernatorial files of Ronald Reagan. But it eerily predicts, and I, don't, I can't tell. For me, it looks a little bit blurry. But um, it eerily predicts the exact moment when the number of non-white Americans would eclipse the number of white prisoners in the state of California, which is sometime around 1975. And I believe that this um, this projection was made in um, in, in 70 or 71. Okay, so so we didn't see we didn't see any kind of explicit racial racial categories in the federal archives, but in the state archives, we see that the ways in which these projections are really shaping the ways that policymakers are planning for prison construction. So when the, the Bureau began working, the, the Bureau of Prisons began working on the long-range plan in early 1970, many federal and state facilities had failed to provide each prisoner with a private cell of at least 75 to 80 square feet of personal space, which was the basic standard as determined by the United Nations and the federal government's own National Advisory Commission on Criminal Justice Standards and Goals. So this is a a federal cell in the early 1970s. The fact that many state and federal facilities had failed to meet these requirements, coupled with severe prison overcrowding in the era of the war on crime, provided the Nixon administration with a strong justification for the reconstruction of the prison system at all levels of government. The Bureau and its consultants devised four broad goals for the Long Range Plan, one to reduce overcrowding, to replace antiquated institutions, to establish more humane conditions, and to improve general security to increase the safety of both guards and prisoners. The Metropolitan Correctional Centers the Bureau designed, for example, were intended to offer authorities. In New York, Chicago, San Diego, San Francisco, Philadelphia, and other major cities, a replacement for outmoded jails. Even more, the metropolitan centers extended the federal prison system from remote areas to the urban epicenter of crime. The long-range plan initially called for 2,450 additional prison beds in the metropolitan centers and other federal institutions, a figure that grew as the Nixon and Ford administrations worked with the Bureau to revise the plan during the 1970s. The Bureau estimated a 20% increase in the federal population between 1972 and 1982, and as such, the total budget for, fe- for federal prisons rose from nearly 70 million in 1969 to nearly 180 million by 1972, of which 60 million alone was, de- was de- designated for the construction of new prisons. Within the first five years of the long-range plan, federal prison authorities had successfully added 1,600 additional beds to the system. So keep in mind that the Department of Justice, which was first created in 1870, had operated only three penal facilities for the first 50 years of its existence, although it steadily opened 24 more between 1923 and 1950. And the Nixon administration now prepared to open dozens of facilities within a decade. So as as the administration prepared to break ground in the new prisons, the District of Columbia Court Reorganization Act of 1970 set a precedent that made state and local governments comfortable to embrace a more punitive approach to sentencing, as Mitchell and other Nixon officials knew well that their anti-crime policies would result in a significant increase in the number of Americans behind bars. The draconian sentencing measures Nixon planned for DC, as well as the heavy-handed policing strategies he and other conservative policymakers supported, were rationalized by the idea that incarceration functioned as a powerful crime deterrent, the value of which could only succeed if punishment was certain. But far from an inevitable process, the deliberate strategy of increasing the number of prisoners that federal officials and law enforcement authorities embraced throughout the 1970s was a critical aspect of the war on crime. This is text, um, of the text of the act. This was the first of Nixon's crime control bills to pass. And the D.C. Court Act, for the first time, standardized punishments according to various criminal classifications, such as dangerous special offender, habitual offender, and narcotic addict. And it also established a mandatory minimum sentence of five years for anyone convicted of a second armed offense. In an early form of the three strikes law later adopted by California and New York, Nixon's legislation also allowed life sentences for those convicted of a third felony. Now, Congress refused to include these severe sentencing guidelines in national legislation, even if policymakers were willing to impose them on the majority black residents of Washington, D.C., where these same legislators worked during the day before returning to their own segregated neighborhoods at night. But a number of states did embrace the the draconian measures of the Nixon administration. In 1973, New York legislators instituted the drug laws favored by Governor Nelson Rockefeller, which called for a mandatory minimum sentence of 15 years to life for suspects caught with relatively small amounts of heroin or cocaine. Five years later, policymakers in Michigan passed the 650-lifer law requiring judges to sentence offenders convicted of, of the possession of one and a half pounds of cocaine or more to life imprisonment without parole. Still, most other states did not begin to sign on to these practices until the height of the war on drugs in the 1980s when half of all current mandatory minimum laws were enacted. And while Congress may have resisted Nixon's more regressive legal reforms, the administration successfully convinced policymakers to impose the goals of the long-range plan on governors. So to ensure that states would have adequate resources to embark on their respective prison construction projects, the Nixon administration introduced new amendments to the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968, which I mentioned earlier and which was essentially the capstone of Johnson's Great Society, and the Nixon administration's own Crime Control Act of 1970. Part E of the legislation created a new source of block grant and discretionary funding for the purpose of prison construction, renovation, and acquisition. So now states were required to dedicate no less than 20% of all federal crime control grants to corrections programs, with with the Department of Justice funding these efforts at 75% of their cost. So as not to overstep the bounds of Nixon's new federalism and the principles of states' rights behind it, as a block grant within a block grant, this stipulation allowed national policymakers to exert direct authority over states while still operating from the premise of decentralization. Even if states hesitated to take Part E funding and prepare to incarcerate new offenders, the Nixon administration ensured that their relentless prison construction and acquisition plan continued. For example, the state of Wisconsin had used Part E funding to construct a prison at Oxford in 1973. Shortly after the prison opened, criminal justice planners announced they had no need for it, seeking to decarcerate offenders and provide community-based facilities as an alternative. So the Bureau of Prisons just moved to acquire the Oxford site for the federal system under a lease acquisition agreement. And with the 75% off coupon from Congress, state spending on prisons skyrocketed as a result of Nixon's Crime Control Act.
0: We'll follow up with the rest of Elizabeth's talk, as well as our interview with her about riots, race, and rebellion, in the next episodes of Kite Line. Stay tuned. This has been Kite Line. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, Kite Line Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at KiteLineRadio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, KiteLineRadio.noblogs.org. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.